Archives podcast series, Researching Mr. Briggs's Hat, a sensational account of Britain's first railway murder, presented by Kate Colquhoun. All right, hello. Thank you for coming. I think I'm going to be teaching my granny, although you don't look like my granny, to suck eggs, because an awful lot of you here are going to know perhaps even more about the series of records that I'm talking about, if not the individual ones. Um, so if I see you going to sleep this one occasion, I won't mind. So first of all, um, Mr Briggs's hat. What is it about? On the evening of Saturday, the 9th of July, 1864, an elderly banker who was in his 69th year was bludgeoned and thrown from a first-class compartment of his railway carriage when he was returning home from work. And about 20 minutes later, his body was found broken on the tracks further down the line at Bow. This was on the North London railway line. It doesn't exist anymore. This was the first murder on a British railway train. And it's underestimating things to say that it sent the country into a spin. By the Monday morning, the papers were full of descriptions of that first-class railway compartment, bloodied and disordered. They were full of the fact that it held no clue. It held no, no body. Um, it held no perpetrator. It held nothing but for its blood and for a crumpled hat, which was found under the seat, as well as a banker's bag and a cane. The second generation detectives from Scotland Yard, most of you will know that um, the uh, detective branch was set up earlier in the century. One, so one of the second generation detectives, Richard Tanner, who had worked with Witcher and a number of the, Stephen Thornton, a number of the other detectives from that first bunch of eight that Dickens wrote so memorably about, was assigned to the case. And as soon as he found out that the hat that had been found in the railway carriage didn't surprisingly belong to Thomas Briggs, he said to himself, if I can find the man who wore that hat on the night of the 9th of July, then I've got my murderer. England held its breath and, of course, clamoured for swift resolution. But, of course, it wasn't that easy because in those days everybody wore a hat, men and women. It was extraordinarily unusual for a man not to wear a hat. And so black hats of all descriptions took on a rather extraordinary significance. They turned up everywhere. They turned up on park benches. They turned up left on seats in omnibuses and in railway carriages. They were brought to police stations in their hundreds. Um, women arrived to tell the police that their husbands had returned home on the night of the 9th of July, bloodied or black-eyed and without their hats. But in fact, uh, the owner of the hat um, proved extremely elusive. That's just a, a very quick overview of the case that I decided to write about um, and which became this book, Mr Briggs's Hat. But by the time I came across the story, in fact, it wasn't a sensation. It was hardly known, and I'd certainly never heard of it. It had been broadly forgotten. But it contained all of the elements of a really gripping read. It had a locked room mystery at the core, and this is 10 years at least before locked room mysteries even started to appear in detective fiction in England. It contained a transatlantic chase uh, during the Civil War. It contained, um, obviously, the American Civil War, an extradition from America, a sensational London trial, and far-reaching changes ultimately to the design of trains and the law of England. What it did, this story, was that it wrapped up imperial manufacturing commercial success, all of the things that British were so proud about, with the extremes of rich and poor that Mayhew and Dickens and other Victorian writers wrote about so vibrantly. And it also bound up another really important polarity, which is that by the 1860s, 
Most of Britain was extraordinarily proud of its industrial progress and success. And that was embodied to some extent in the railways. Everywhere you looked, they transformed Britain, both with the tracks and the viaducts and the railway stations in the whistle and the shriek of every engine crossing streets going through countrysides, completely transforming the speed at which people lived and the kind of goods that were available to them. There was great pride wrapped up in all of this, but there was also great anxiety. Many of those um, 1860s Victorians were asking themselves on the heels of Darwin's new theories and other new scientific theories, what's the price to be paid for all of this progress? How destabilising, in fact, are these new ideas about religion or about science, about where we came from? Um, social hierarchies were in flux. In other words, there was an awful lot um, to be quite worried about, much in the way that we are now, living in a rapid digital revolution. Um, people didn't quite know where they stood. The ground seemed to be shifting under their feet, and consequently, the train was often a symbol both for pride, as I've mentioned, but also for this kind of destabilising doubt. And so when a murder happened on the train, a murder of a respectable icon of Victorian progress, you know, the proof that hard work is repaid by wealth and so on, when he's murdered, it seems to, to society in a way that, that all of the plots of sensation novels have burst out, have become supra-sensei. Crime doesn't happen, if you like, anymore where it's supposed to happen, in back alleys and in dingy um, lower-class tenements and courts, that it's actually come to their doorsteps. So that on Monday morning following the murder, the Times reports, or the Telegraph, in fact, reports, if we can be slain thus, we can be massacred in our pews at church or at our dinner tables. The threat had come to rest very firmly on the middle-class doorstep. So this story, I've written plenty of books, they're all very different, and what I look for are a number of different things. First of all, the story has to thrill me, and this story thrilled me partly also because it's really heartbreaking. Beyond that, it has to contain really um, recognisable geographies. I have to be able to walk the places where my characters have walked. I have to be able to smell it, see it, see how the light changes at different times of the year and so on. I have to get under the skin, if you like, and try and walk myself back into the world that they lived in. And this story happens, although it happens in America, it also happens predominantly in London. I have to care about the lives involved. Um, and as one newspaper said at the time of this murder, it contained a cast list in terms of its witnesses and people who were involved with it, as rich and varied as a Dickensian novel. And through those people, it has to reveal more, if you like, than the sum of its parts. It has to tell us, it has to tell me something more about society than just this event that I'm describing and the investigation that came as a result of it. And finally, if you're wondering where I'm going, most importantly, for me, there have to be primary source material. I am not a novelist, I'm a historian. I absolutely rely on facts recorded at the time, diaries, letters, statements, the kind of things that allow me to know not only what happened when, but how people felt about it. I can't say he or she wondered. I can't say he or she closed their eyes or turned this way and that, unless somebody else has said it. And I think any historian is extraordinarily rigorous about leaving that kind of wonder that a novelist can put into their story completely out of their, of their narrative. 
The only way then for me to punch a hole in time and hold hands with the past in a way that will allow you to see the past as well, I hope, is to work on documents like these. So I'm going to give you a really quick trawl through the documents that I use, the kind of research processes that I use, an awful lot of which are here in the National Archives. In fact, the most important ones obviously are. Um, police, Metropolitan Police Records Files, they're all under the MEPO series and there's a randomness about what has survived, obviously. Um, it tends to be the cause celebre, so that the investigation into the death of Savile Kent, the Mr. Witcher crime, those files are here. Um, there, there are also, there's also plenty actually. If you, I mean, it's, it's amazing to scroll through just the MEPO records. They're full of human stories. In some ways, this is the point. They're not just files full of documents which need to be preserved for the future. They are that. But each of those documents that needs to be preserved for the future tells a human story and a story of endeavour, of ad adventure, often of tragedy as well. Uh, so if anyone's interested most particularly in the 19th century and the late 19th century, the MEPO files are the places to go. Of course, all of the Ripper files are there too, and there'll be, there are indeed uh, square feet of them. Um, these documents and these uh, two files are um, under MEPO 375 and 376, um, have a certain amount of randomness about what has survived. They clearly don't include everything to do with the police case. But what they do include is statements taken from police stations all over London and indeed all over England from people who've come forward to give voluntarily to give um, information, and also from suspects who've been cautioned and questioned. They also contain lots and lots of orders from Sir Richard Mayne, who was the commissioner of the police at that time, to Tanner about what he should do. There are some, uh, some press clippings. Um, there are internal memoranda, all sorts of things. Um, from my point of view, um, there are some very rare things in there. Um, on the left is the reward poster that went up within a week of Mr Briggs's death. It's enormous, really big. And you, this is what brings the past alive to me. It's obviously in, not in great condition, but it is the only one, so far as I know, that exists. So this, you can imagine opening the folders up and you're looking through all the documents, transcribing madly, trying to get through as much as you can. Then you come over on something like this and you open it up and there it is, something that has been printed to go on the street corners to alert people to what has happened. It's screaming bloody murder in 1864. And it's offering, in fact, I can't get the whole thing in, couldn't get the whole thing in, but it's offering a £100 reward from the government, a further £100 reward from the bank that Mr Briggs worked at in Lombard Street in the city and a third £100 reward from the railway company directors. An enormous amount of money. And it contains a description of the hat and the watch and a number of other things that were missing. And then on the right, the Reuters telegram, which was sent from America about the arrest of a suspect called Franz Muller. And um, it says, I think you can read, New York, August the 26th, evening. The Victoria, that's a boat, has arrived in New York and Muller has been arrested. The hat and watch of Mr Briggs were found in his position. Muller protests his innocence and the legal proceedings in reference to his extradition are progressing. And this is really exciting too because until I get to this point... There is a transatlantic chase. This man, this German, Paul Taylor, who also worked in the city, an immigrant, 
has been identified as the suspect, but he's left England from Victoria, from London docks on a wooden sail ship called the Victoria. Inspector Tanner therefore realises that his detectives have to give chase. He has a week's lead on them. So some of his men go to Liverpool and catch a much faster steamship and set sail. Obviously this is pre-Crippen, it's pre-suboceanic cables. Um, and then there's silence because nobody has any way of getting news about what those boats crossing the ocean are doing. So nobody in England knows what's happening. It is a real cliffhanger, three weeks or so of complete silence. But then you have to wait for the news to be printed in the American papers and to come back on the ships. Obviously, uh, the detectives, Tanner and his men in New York, know that they've got there, and they know that they've got there pretty quickly ahead of Muller's ship. But they then wait in the middle of the Civil War in New York, in sweltering heat in, the, in August, for the Victoria to appear. And they don't know whether she ever will. They don't know whether she'll be scuppered by Confederate troops. They don't know whether she will land somewhere else. They don't know if he'll jump off and swim to the shore. But eventually the boat arrives and there's this great kind of building tension of these men who just want to get the job done and come home. Um, and this is the telegram sent back to England, which arrives two weeks or two and a half weeks, in fact, after Muller's arrested. So I think you can get the sense that these files, to me at any rate, are thrilling. What they also have in them, these are a man called um, Superintendent William Ninnis Tiddy's expenses. He was a pretty junior policeman, but he seemed to be expected to pay out all the time whenever there was any money needed to um, hire omnibuses or hansom cabs to witnesses across London, um, to pay to empty the dust hole um, outside Muller's lodgings in London to see if a hat could be found in it or anything else, any other kind of suspicious items. What these beautifully written expense claims um, allow me to do is piece together the police inquiry in a way that I wouldn't be able to do otherwise. I know exactly which witnesses went from where to where, on what day and almost at what time because the times are often in there. I know an awful lot of things that the police were doing um, which were never reported in the newspapers. So these are um, gold dust for me. There were only two files of um, police records in the MEPO series, but because this is a capital case, because a man was tried for murder, um, inevitably the Home Office are involved. Um, and you'll find often the kind of police files that have survived from the late 19th century are likely to be tied in with Home Office files because they are likely to be capital cases. Um, as you can see, these also contain an enormous variety of information. These show the kind of letters from the public that arrived. Bags and bags and bags. This case galvanised the public and split opinion absolutely on one side or another about whether the police had run a proper inquiry, whether they had the right man. And this was really important. It wasn't just about, have you got the right man and is justice going to be done? This was about, if this case isn't solved, there's no kind of moral cauterisation. There's no reimposition of safety, of a sense of being able to kind of move on in the world. So um, the reimposition of order, which of course is hugely important in detective fiction, is also hugely important in the way that societies behave when they feel that they've been transgressed. So the Home Office files, more than any others, actually chart this. Um, 
and they, like the police files I should have said actually, are closed for 100 years, uh, which is good news in my case because these were all opened in the, in the 1960s but wouldn't be um, so good for files, I imagine, from sort of only 96 years ago. You have to wait a bit. Um, what some of these Home Office files also contain are um, pamphlets on the top right. You know, there are pamphlets about everything in the Victorian period. Um, anybody who had an opinion on anything wrote a pamphlet and sold it for a penny and made a bit of money. Um, but they also contain, I think that's a list of witnesses on the left, I can't quite remember, um, which is quite interesting. It lets you see if you've missed anybody out. And in this case, also, um, these Home Office files... Um, also contained the handwritten notes of Sir George Grey as he considered, who was the Home Secretary, um, as he considered what should be done in this case. And these are absolutely <coughs> crucial because talking about really wanting to know how people felt, the workings of George Grey's mind are not recorded in terms of this case anywhere else. Um, so I could actually write about, in the way that, of course, every writer wants to write, about how, you know, what, what he took into consideration before he made his very, very crucial decision um, in November 1864. So much for the obvious places to look. There are lots and lots of places here um, which help to tell part of the rest of the story um, in terms of sort of criminals and the law. And since all historical research is in effect finding pieces of a jigsaw which you can then put together later. You inevitably have to put them together later because pieces appear from all over the place and one's opinion or sense of the story that you're researching changes according to the information that you find. So you have to not only be tenacious but keep the most extraordinarily open mind. Um, the other sorts of documents that are available here um, are less case-specific, but they can turn up real gems of information that send you questioning, which is really important, your sense of, of the truth, insofar as that's possible to get at. It's quite interesting, that bottom uh, left one is... Um, the printed memorial um, on behalf of uh, the man who is convicted, I'm being rather careful because I don't want to give away the story, um, when asking for a reprieve, um, is annotated. This is one of Sir George Grey's annotations. So you can actually see which parts of it he objects to most by the sort of underlining he is a very respectable man. Well, clearly George Grey didn't think that he was. Um, in the PCOM series, there are the Newgate registers. They're vast and very heavy, and they're really, really remarkable books. Um, they are thick, vellum-bound um, albums, really, which record the ent by entry for each prisoner chronologically. Um, and they have, so you can see here in the middle, um, Franz Muller. These are the Newgate registers. Um, so obviously there are different ones for different prisons. But... They have uh, columns that are entered into at each part of that prisoner's progress through the jail. Um, their entry, when they go to court, what the outcome of that is, and then what happens as a result of that. And what's really interesting here is that it records Muller's age and I think his height. I can't remember. Yeah, five foot six. 
and 23. And he's a really, really difficult man to work out because he's German and because Germany at that stage wasn't unified and because therefore its records, historical records, either haven't exist, certainly haven't been catalogued in any great form and are very hard to find. It was really, really hard to pick apart who this man was, not who the newspapers said he was, but really, you know, the basic facts about his life and then putting flesh on those bones. And in fact, one of the things I should have said is that those Home Office files were very useful for me in that respect because they contained background checks that the Home Office had asked the Foreign Office to perform through its offices in Cologne and Dresden. So we did actually have some background about him, which was completely unavailable um, anywhere else. So the Newgate registers can unearth information that you might not get elsewhere. This is my favourite. It was filthy. This huge bundle of um, inquest findings and true bills, it's in the CRIM, this is CRIM 5 stroke 4. Um, this is the really hard end of criminal research. It is quite rare for inquest proceedings to exist, to have survived. When they do, they're most often not here. Uh, they're in different record offices in different places spread all over the place. Um, the good news is that almost always the newspapers did describe and report inquest proceedings in very great detail, so they're not necessarily needed, but, um, but they don't, none of the stuff sort of exists, so anything you can get your hands on gives you a sense of the history. Um, what came out of this extraordinary thing, I don't think anyone had had this out for years and years, and it was, you know, you had to turn these vellum pages along this they were laced onto this filthy piece of string. Um, I was black by the time I finished, and, and just keep moving really slowly, not quite knowing what you might unearth. This um, gave me two things. It gave me the true bill, which is, um, you probably know what it is, I didn't when I set out. Before a court, um, before a trial happens, it possibly even happens now, I'm not sure, um, a grand jury was sworn. Uh, the judge or the clerk of the arraigns would explain to the grand jury what the key elements, uh, what the key proof was in this, in any case given, and the grand jury had to return a true bill. In other words, they had to say, it looks like there's the basic fundamental material for a trial here. And if they didn't, they'd throw it out and it wouldn't even get to trial. So the true bill's important because it gives us the names of the grand jury in um, the Briggs trial. Um, and the second thing that was on here was the inquest certificate in Hackney. This is the inquest on the body of Thomas Briggs held in the public house in Hackney. We were in a number of different places, actually, because the crowds were so enormous, I had to keep moving to bigger and bigger places. And um, this is re it's really rare for inquest certificates to um, survive. And I think that in this case it has, because it was such a sensational case. But what this gives me is um, the names of all the jurors in the inquest. And you may say, that doesn't matter. Why would you need them? None of it's in the book. But to me, it does matter, because I can then trace them through the census. I can find out how old they are. I can find out what their trades are. I can find out where they came from. And again, and I'll come back to this, although that doesn't make it into the book, it totally informs my historical sense of what was going on and who was making these decisions. And I think that's really important. The other thing that's really wonderful about this document is that um, basically it's giving you the name of the victim and he's written Thomas, Clark's written Thomas, and then Muller, which has been crossed out, and Briggs. And it's a really, really tiny mistake, but it's incredibly um, 
interesting because in the public mind, the name of Thomas Briggs and the name of Franz Müller completely elided. And you sort of lose both of them. You lose the victim because he's disappeared and his family are unitarian, very tight-lipped, very respectable middle class. They basically just kind of retire behind their um, curtains. Um, and you have no one to speak for Franz Müller because he's a poor, poor immigrant. He has no family here. Um, and it's really interesting to me, this process of how people disappear and elide and are confused with one another. Um, so it's a tiny little point, but again, sort of thing that you don't really get from transcripts, because transcripts tend to go back and give you the correct version, what was corrected, rather than the mistakes of the time. And it's those mistakes that add the character and the kind of knots to the story. I've slightly come to an end of slides about National Archives material, although there is a lot more. There are, of course, all of the record books for um, the Home Office letters books, and the letters books record every letter received in summary and every letter sent out. And there are gaps, frustrating gaps, because they often tend to be on the days that you need, but they are there. And so if you can't find the information somewhere else, um, those, uh, the letters books of the different departments of um, Parliament are worth looking at. And um, there are also police orders books. And they're really interesting because they will tell you again um, the background to what the press will record. So the press will record that there is a huge crowd of 100,000 at Muller's return to Euston Station um, or at uh, some other event which I can't really go into. Um, but what the police orders books will show is how Commissioner Main actually had to think about that in advance and work out what to do about it. How he had to order his police to dra draft in, first of all, new constables and new um, recruits from around London to be able to control the crowds. And how he had to make decisions about closing certain roads, you know, much as we do today. But you know, these, are, these are buried in police order books, which might at one point be telling people, telling uh, Tanner that he has to get uh, 70 more men to man the end of this particular street in Hackney. The next order might be that all chin straps have to be worn at a certain angle. You know, you, there's no kind of rhyme or reason to it. You just have to kind of keep looking through. You have to be very rigorous and leave no stone on time. And of course, you don't need any of that. I don't need any of that. It's all in the newspapers. But in terms of being, a, I suppose, a good historian, in terms of being able to put in the colour, which I can't make up, that's where you find it. So beyond the National Archives, there is also a world of historical research, of course. Um, for me, um, one of the most important is the newspaper repository library at Collindale, which is about to go to Yorkshire. Um, but the good thing is that most of the newspapers, most of our British newspapers have been digitised, both the national and the uh, rural ones. Um, and you can look at them and search them on subscription, and it's, it's a brilliantly proficient system. Of course, the Telegraph typically isn't um, digitised. It's only available on um, microfilm or fiche, and the Times is a different and extremely expensive um, digitised library to look at, So, by, but, and you can't do it through St Pancras. So by being able to go to Collindale, because my local library doesn't have access to this, I can print out randomly, you can see huge files, of um, newspaper reports on a day-by-day -day basis. And sometimes I take the national ones, and then I'd also look at what were people thinking in Glasgow, or Dundee, or Dublin, or Belfast, or Oxford, or 
wherever, you know, in order to see that this story is rippling out into the absolute corners of the nation and to see whether it's changing or whether it's actually remaining coherent. What newspapers do, much as they do today, is fill in the gaps. You have to be a little bit sceptical about them because there's quite a lot of misreporting. But, um, but crucially for this period, they, this, this is the great age of newspapers, you know, from the abolition of the, new, of the paper tax um, to the growth of literacy through the 1840s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, um, and so on. Newspapers' circulations grew enormously so that by the 1860s, the broadsheets that cater to the middle classes have a circulation of, and I can't quite remember, but I think it's half a million um, a, a day combined, whereas the penny press, the equivalent of the tabloids that come out on uh, Saturdays and Sundays, the Lloyds, the Reynolds and that sort, um, have a combined circulation um, of three million. So you can see that you know, this is an age of a very widespread um, uh, information about what's going on in the world. And of course they feed on scandal and sensation. Um, it's not just in the novels of you know, Braddon and Wilkie Collins and so on that this kind of appetite for sensation is obvious. It's also really obvious in the newspapers. It's what sells newspapers as much as it does today. Um, so these are um, kind of crucial for me. Um, in addition, the American National Archives, and I don't know if there's any official connection with the archives here, um, but they are as wonderful um, as the National Archives in Kew, and they are also um, catalogued online. Um, so I identified um, on their online catalogue a case which may or may not have been to do with this story. Because it involved an extradition from New York and the signature of President Lincoln, I really hoped that the documents would have survived in Washington, um, although the archives are just across the border in Maryland, but I couldn't afford to go and I didn't really have access to a researcher although I was trying to find one. Um, so I decided that it was an awful lot cheaper to not to, to fly there, but to just ask for copies to be made. I mean, now, in the book I'm working on, I've actually just had digitised copies of some archives in America sent to me, but uh, this was just a couple of years ago and they had to send them to me on um, photocopies. And I didn't really know what I was going to get. It was about 100 quid, and I, should I, shouldn't I? Anyway, the documents arrived, and I opened them up. And um, extraordinarily, there are things that survive in America which are English, but which haven't survived here. So because they were part of the extradition hearing, all of the depositions from the key witnesses taken at Bow Street Magistrates Court in July, almost immediately following the death of Thomas Briggs, existed in the American archives where they didn't exist here. Um, there was also a complete transcript of the, a handwritten transcript of the extradition hearing. And as you can see, a certificate of criminality allowing Tanner to bring Muller back to England. So it was a punt, as often these things are, and it was an expensive punt, um, but couldn't have been more worthwhile. And now we're sort of getting to the bits of research which... Um, you sort of can't stop as a historian. Well, I can't stop. I can't stop by saying I've read everything that I can think I can read at the British Library or at Collindale or at the National Archives or, got my, or, or in archives um, elsewhere in the world. There are always bits and pieces left. And, of course, you can't turn over it. You can't find everything. You can't go on forever, apart from anything else, if you've got a 
publishing contract, you actually have to deliver a manuscript on a certain date. But some of the things that I'm coming on to now are the sort of places which you sort of can't leave uninvestigated, at least at the most cursory level. The Black Museum is in the middle of Scotland Yard and impossible to get into without national security clearance, I was told by a very difficult, now um, no longer there, um, curator. And I think it will become more accessible. It's a museum which exists to train, supposedly, um, uh, the murder squad. In fact, it's a couple of rooms full of the most extraordinary artefacts, including the bath, that the brides in the bath were... Um, all sorts of horrid bits and pieces from famous murders going back the last hundred and so on years. And it also had a death mask um, of somebody who I'm not going to tell you who it is, but this death mask <laughs> directly relates to this case. And it enabled me, even though I had seen photographs of this man's face, it enabled me to hold his head in my hands, to see its exact size, to feel... This was made immediately that he was cut down, so an hour after he was killed. So you have to bear in mind, of course, that there are kind of physiological changes that go on when you're strung up. But um, it enabled me to feel that I would recognise this man in a crowd, that what you don't get in a two-dimensional photograph, what you can sort of get by overlaying your experience of holding this death mask with photographs that were taken of him, is something more approximating a little bit more than the photograph, a little bit less than the death mask, if you get my drift. It's a sort of wonderful organic combination of the two. Um, my point in showing you this is that private museums can be incredibly hard to get into, um, and they're almost always worth getting into, and it's usually just a combination of extraordinary patience and as much charm as you can muster. Um, maps are my great love. And um, the London Metropolitan Archives for London is the best place to go, although lots of them are online. And I, um, I always, always have contemporary maps as close as possible uh, for all of the locations that I write about. And I then, and these are the, this is the 1862 dispatch map, it's really, really huge. Um, it's about as it's bigger than that screen. And so you can get it in four, 12 sections, which are each sort of this big. And I walked around the city with these great, huge rolls um, and a camera and a dictaphone, um, really because I needed to... They, they're in so much detail, these maps, that you can see which buildings existed. In combination with Kelly's post office directories, you can see which buildings existed, which didn't, which ones might have been rising at the time. So, for example, as Thomas Briggs takes his journey home, well, every day on the train, he passed the Bryant and May Match Factory, which is where Annie Besant started her great protest several years later, but it was just being constructed. So just as we sort of pass buildings that are going up and hardly could give them another thought, this building, which is still there, it's flats now, but became the locus of an incredibly important part of our kind of union history, um, was sort of just on the margins of the story that I was writing. But this is all just really, for me, absolutely crucial. Um, when I was writing my biography of Joseph Paxton, I used to go and sit in the Palm House in Kew because I needed to get the sound of a tropical landscape, and it was the only way that I could do it. Um, and I really urge anybody who's doing historical research to find old maps and to sort of try and live in them, to try and get into them, not just to look at them, um, but to use them for walks. You know, place, to get that sense of places that often don't exist anymore. Um, 
you have to look everywhere. I mean, the great thing about Victorians is that they did love to write about their lives. So um, from Mayhew writing about street life to Mayhew writing about prisons, you can get an awful lot of information about what places looked and felt and smelt like. Um, this is um, a trawl of images which were found in an awful lot of different places. That's the Camberwell House of Detention on the top left, which is where our suspect was put before trial. This is New York from a guidebook published in 1862, that's Broadway, and of course America was only um, built up to 40th Street or 42nd Street. This from the Hackney archives in the middle is the, uh, what the London, North London Railway looked like in Hackney at that time, because that's not there anymore. Um, a Black Maria on the left, because of course we don't know what those look like, but I can't think where that's from, maybe a newspaper, Illustrated London News. The London docks, um, the uh, trial, the Old Bailey, because of course you can't get into the old court anymore, that's what, exactly what it looked like. And um, the bottom one from Coots's um, archives is Robarts Curtis Bank, which doesn't exist anymore, um, was bombed during the war, that's where Thomas Briggs worked as chief clerk to the bank. Um, all these things, kind of just little bits of the jigsaw, really, that put the story together. Um, and equally, people. Now, of course, if your people are famous, you're really lucky. You can go to the National Portrait Gallery. You can do all sorts of trawls and trials, and you find um, what they look like. Uh, there's Judge Pollock on the top, quite a famous judge. Parry, um, barrister, defence counsel. Um, Muller on the top, and, and people that we could never see, the working class witnesses who were in the trial, um, for whom there are no photographs, um, characterised in the local, um, or not in the local, in the weekend penny press. So, um, in fact, uh, a jeweller called Dr Death, rather wonderfully, um, and uh, a tailor and his wife called Elizabeth Repsch, who I took great exception to and ended up really disliking. This, I wrote a piece recently for um, Who Do You Think You Are? And this is a sort of um, pressy of a lot of the things that I've just been saying um, in terms of criminal research, um, not just what's here, um, but also things like Old Bailey Online, which extraordinarily has transcripts of every trial at the Old Bailey from the 17th century. Um, but you know what? When you have exhausted all of this, there's a certain amount of luck um, which I've come to completely rely on. I think if you're tenacious enough, and if you stick at it enough, um, and if you keep your eyes open enough, and if you keep turning things over and talking to people and never ignoring something that perhaps needs to be looked at, then you sort of create your own luck. It always happens. Um, and what's brilliant, obviously, about publishing a book is that it ends up getting quite a lot of publicity and being written about. Um, and it's in shops, you know, you suddenly get a much wider audience and you start to be able to find things out that you couldn't find out before. So finally, the one person that I never had an image for was Thomas Briggs. The only image that exists in that hardback is one that was um, drawn from memory several years later um, and it was found in the Madame Two Swords archive. I was really hoping to find an old wax head in a box but unfortunately they had a fire and all the wax melted from sort of, so anybody who was in the Chamber of Horrors, which is where all the murderers went, has gone. But anyway, um, I had no image of Thomas Briggs. 
And I knew from his will, something else I haven't talked about, but wills are very revealing, um, I knew that he had left his portrait in oils to his oldest son, George. He had so many children and I didn't have time to trace genealogically all of them back to now. But I did decide, with great help from a friend, to trace the living descendants of George in the hope that I'd be able to find that portrait. And I did find them, um, and I even managed to talk to them um, and have contact with them, but um, the portraits disappeared. So that was it, gone. When the book was published, I got started to get, um, and this happened with Paxton too, letters uh, from all over the world, um, from family members and also just people who were interested. And um, I was sent copies of the letters that were found in the breast pocket of the bludgeoned man on the night that he was found, with the letters that were used to identify him. Absolutely extraordinary. I knew what he was carrying in his pockets. But I was also sent these. The top photograph is Thomas Briggs, taken in 1852 just really surprised me. It's not what I thought he was going to look like. Um, the old woman is his widow, Mary, taken after his death. Um, the young man at the bottom is Thomas James, his oldest son, who um, plays quite a big part in uh, representing the family uh, publicly. But those tiny miniatures, you can see how small they are, are of Thomas and Mary, made in the year that he was killed. This is the closest we'll ever get to knowing what Thomas Briggs looked like. So this is the image which is going in the paperback. And, and I suppose it, it, it's a really nice place to end because what it does is it proves that historical research never finishes. You've sent it off to the printer if, you are having, you know, if your work's being published or you've put it away in a box and you've said, I've learned everything that I can possibly learn. There's nowhere else I can go. And then stuff still keeps coming up, which makes you, can make you, completely reappraise what you thought before. Obviously this doesn't, but what it does do for me is almost make the whole book worthwhile because it gives us the whole process, years, the years that it took to research and write and publish and promote, has ended up by giving us back an image of a man who was brutally murdered, who became extraordinarily famous, a cipher, if you like, for transgressed kind of middle-class respectability, but whose face had disappeared. And I think that's really lovely. I think that sort of is the end of the story. This event was recorded on the 3rd of November 2011 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.